So as we continue through the book of Luke, what we want to do is kind of put our historical thinking caps on and kind of take our trip back to the first century and kind of with the disciples. Now, here's where the disciples are at. Jesus has been about three years into his ministry now. So the disciples, at this point, they should, there's an expectation that by three years into this ministry with Jesus, they kind of got some idea what's going on here. We'll discover, of course, that they actually have no idea what's going on here. This is towards the end of the ministry of Jesus. He has now been in the Galilean region for a year and a half, maybe two, give or take. And he's been with the disciples. They have actually gone out on their own. He sent the 12 out. They've gone out and done miracles on their own. They have had a ministry of their own. This is a moment where having done ministry, spent time with Jesus, listened to his teaching and the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of this stuff. It, we've actually got to the place where Jesus has taken three of them up on the mount. You know, Peter makes this great confession. Jesus gets them out in the wilderness and says, all right, we know who everybody says I am. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. Right. Okay, wow, we got that down. This, this is great. Jesus is not just a great teacher or a great prophet or even the prophet. He is the Messiah. Let's tell everybody. And of course, Jesus immediately says to them, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody. Now, they're obedient to that, but it's clear that they, they don't get that. They, they, they do not connect those dots. And he says to them, the Son of Man is going to have to go and to suffer many things. And he's going to be rejected by the elders and the priests and the scribes. And he's going to be killed. But don't worry, on the third day he'll raise again. And they're, and they're just kind of like, huh? And it's instructive to us. Sometimes we read the Bible and we're kind of like, what? What exactly is God trying to say here? If you're in that position and sometimes you read your Bible and you just have difficulty figuring out exactly what's going on there, you're in good company. The 12 had the exact same issue. They have Jesus right there with them. And still they're kind of, huh? So then the, sermon, the, uh, the Mount of Transfiguration occurs. They go up there. They're on the mount. They actually see Jesus transfigure before them, three of them anyway. And then they, they come down off the mount. And here's the situation we looked at last week, which is where the disciples, the nine who were left behind, have got this demon they can't cast out. And there's a big discussion about all that. And Jesus shows up and he, I mean, he rescues them before it gets too embarrassing. And the crowds are just like, oh, this is wonderful. And Jesus once more, this is crucial to today's passage, once more he turns to them and says, look, let these words sink in. Please just pay attention, guys. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. You don't get grand thoughts here. This is not the moment for you all to be thinking, wow, isn't this going to go great? Jesus is the Messiah. He's finally the long-awaited Messiah. Why, any minute now, he's going to, I don't know, call the angels out of the sky, and, and he's going to overthrow the Romans, and, and, and we're going to sit on thrones and rule the whole world, and isn't this just going to be fantastic? Jesus is looking at them and trying to help them think through how this is going to go. This is, this is a huge moment. This is what Jesus 
discussed with Moses and Elijah up on the mount was his coming departure in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die. This is, we don't want to make light of this situation. We, we, this is not the moment for us to, to think, well, you know, I mean, it's just Jesus. I, I mean, of course, it, it wasn't that big a deal. I mean, after all, he rose from the dead right after that. Um, no, this is the Son of God. He has no business dying. He, he should not be hanging on a cross like a common criminal, but he's going to. In fact, it's at the great confession of Peter that he says to them, look, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. This is what's in your future. You're going to have to take up a cross. And if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. The only way you're, going to, the only way you're not going to lose your life is if, for my sake, you give it up. Then you will save it. So here we have Luke presenting for us this really clear picture about Jesus. Jesus is humble. Jesus is sacrificial. Jesus is on his way to the cross. And then, and then we get to today's passage. So here are the disciples, and they've, they've heard Jesus say all of this. They're, if they're paying any attention at all, looking at it going, all right, we should be trying to die to ourselves, and we should be thinking about taking up our cross. And, and, but what are they actually doing? Well, Luke 9, verse 46, an argument started among them as to which of them should be the greatest. Really? Seriously? This is what's occupying your minds? Mark, which um, Robert just read, they came to Capernaum, and when they, when they went into the house, they began, he began to question them, saying, what, what were you guys talking about on the way? I, I mean, I heard you back there. We're walking along, and, and what were you guys talking about? <clears throat> You know, we don't. They're a little embarrassed. They keep silent because, because what they've been talking about was which of them was the greatest. Seriously, this is the this is your discussion, and this is the moment in which you're getting into this. Really, are you paying any attention whatsoever to what's going on? And when we find ourselves in a in a situation where there are people among us, or that we are interacting with, who just seem so spiritually out of it. Um, We should look at the example of Jesus here. He's kind to them. He's compassionate to them. But the fact is that what they're doing is going to, if they continue in this course of action, this is going to be extremely destructive to the work that Jesus is trying to get done, to the work they're supposed to be trying to get done. Guys, this is not the moment you... You just haven't got your theology correct here. We are not going to be going to Jerusalem to to inaugurate the kingdom and put you all on thrones. That is not what's going to be happening here. And to sit around and talk about which of us is going to get the greatest honor, which of us is going to get the greatest glory, uh, where do you think this kind of a discussion is going to go? And it's very easy to see where it goes because it says it right there. They got into an argument. We, we don't have all the details, but it doesn't require too much imagination, all of us having human nature. You could picture the conversation as they're making their way back from the Mount of Transfiguration and from, you know, Jesus casting out that demon boy. And, and you know, they're, they're headed back to Capernaum and they're sitting around and, and somebody says, uh, wow, you know, that demon was really tough. I mean, uh, 
It, probably one of the three who were up on the mountain who, you know, they, they didn't actually have to cast out the demon. They just stood there and watched Jesus do it. So that you could see them kind of looking at the other nine and going, yeah, that was, that was uh, apparently a pretty tough thing there. I mean, even Jesus said it was hard for them to come out. So, um, so what are the greatest miracles you guys have done, you think? Oh, well, you know, one time I did this or that, you know. Oh, that's nothing. Why, one time I, and I, you can just picture that, right? I mean, we've all kind of watched those conversations unfold. Someone is out there, and they've, they want to start talking about, well, they don't want to actually just stand up and talk about how great they are. So they want to just kind of have a, whatever your story is, they've got a better one. Well, whatever it is you tell, oh, they can top that. And this is, you can see this conversation getting to where, well, I've done a greater miracle than you've done. And, and, well, let me tell you right now, we get into this kingdom, and it comes time for somebody to sit on the right hand of Jesus. I'll tell you who that's going to be. It's going to be me. That's, and you just watch. The conversation just degenerates into this, this open discussion about who in the world is going to do what. I know when I was, like, in high school, um, we would have people get up and give testimonies. And I can remember, particularly at the high school age, we had those folks get up, and we called them bragamonies instead of testimonies, right? Yeah. Why, this is how wicked a sinner I was, you know? And, and they get out and talk about all their immorality and drug use, and, and then the next person to get up, and of course they had to be even more wicked than the last guy. And you, know, you kind of looked at them and thought, well, that's, 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 um, that's all kind of interesting, you know? Um, you assume most of them were saved, although some of them seemed pretty enthusiastic about their wickedness, and you wondered if maybe they were going to come out and, Commit some more, just to have a better testimony later. Uh, we want to get the glory, right? We want to talk about how great we are. This is not uncommon. This is a, a characteristic of who we are. And we should look at the disciples and look at ourselves and say, you know, that, guy, that can't be me. I want to be clothed in humility. Now, we do want things to go good, right? The disciples don't, we don't want to hear. I don't want to hear about how bad things are going to go. I, I don't want to hear about how trials are going to come or how it's going to get any worse. I mean, come on. Paul said, oh, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Exactly why do you think Paul felt compelled to write that verse? Because everything was going to go great? No, he wrote that verse because there are going to be trying circumstances. And what he's saying is that in the end, all things will, in fact, work together for our good. He didn't say all things are going to work together good. He didn't say it's all going to be goodness. Goodness now, goodness then, goodness forever. Now, there will be goodness forever when we get to heaven. But he's trying to prepare them that in the midst of difficulties and hardships, remember that God is on the throne, and when it's all done, and when it's all over, and we stand before God for the day of judgment, we will discover that it all worked together for our good. But part of how that might have worked together is that the suffering of this present world, which is not to be compared with the glory which shall be with us, it may very well be the actual suffering is what brings us to the place of glory. It's our suffering that is going to allow us to honor God. When everything is going 100% fantastic, um, sure, we honor God. Well, I hope we do. And we're thankful to God. 
Our society, here we are, we are the most prosperous society in the history of mankind. It's no exaggeration. Solomon would be jealous of the life of the average American. He didn't have hot and cold running water. He didn't have air conditioning. He didn't, he, no electricity, no refrigeration, no... You, we have stuff we don't even think about. It's just common. Get in your car and drive home. What? Solomon had no cars. There were no cars. That, we can, you can get a little device, and you can listen to the greatest music ever made. He had to get a, a, a choir and a... And an orchestra, and, you know, the only way you got music is if people were actually singing. Other than that, no music. We just take for granted how wonderful we have it. And yet here we are in the midst of all of this, and what do we have? We have one of the most disgruntled, unhappy, just as a society, huge swaths of people are just miserable. The pharmaceutical industry is handing out more antidepressants. It's frightening how many people are, are, are taking antidepressants, the, the percentage of our population. We live in the greatest prosperity ever. We ought to be, that, I mean, we ought to be doing backflips. We ought to be the happiest, most fantastically thankful, gracious. Things are just going great. Oh, you read the newspaper lately? I, you know, oh, no. Which I think, by the way, is... Part of the reason why we have such crazy panic. Science is not fixing everything. The guy in the white lab cloak isn't isn't correcting it all. Well, yeah, God is actually still in charge. And there are going to be trials, and there are going to be difficulties, and there are going to be hardships. And it's in the midst of those that we learn to trust God. And the 12, well, they have not really got that message yet. This has not really occurred to them. They're thinking that I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because I'm going to get to sit on the right hand of Jesus and I'm going to rule the biggest kingdom and I'm going to have the most authority and the most power and things are just going to be going the greatest for me. And I'm going to measure how I'm doing in the kingdom by, well, I don't know how much money I have or authority I have or influence I have or whatever in the world it is. The, the greater the stuff is I have, the greater I'll be doing in the kingdom. And of course, Jesus has got to come back to them and say, look, guys, This is not how greatness is measured in the kingdom, by the way. This is not how it's going to be determined who is the greatest in the kingdom. This greatness thing that you guys are over here arguing about is only going to lead to envy, strife, and division, which, of course, is exactly what they're in. They're sitting around arguing about who's going to be the greatest. The minute you get into this discussion about who's going to be the greatest... What what we're doing is we're now comparing ourselves among ourselves. We're now looking at one another and trying to decide who we are based on how we're doing compared to each other. Well, we can always do that comparison and come out on top. You can go into prisons and talk to people who are in prison, and they'll tell you, well, at least I'm not as bad as the guy over there in cell number whatever. I mean, everybody can look at somebody else and go, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. That's not the standard. Comparing ourselves among ourselves simply makes us pharisaical. It simply makes us people who who put ourselves up by putting others down. We just declare that we're better than others. We are literally holier than thou. That is not a great solution. What we have to measure ourselves to, and what the disciples, by the way, need to measure themselves to, is Jesus. 
You've got to measure yourself to Jesus. How do you do then? Oh, well, no one measures up to Jesus. Exactly. That's the whole point. No one measures up to Jesus. And so what we need to be is clothed in humility. This isn't a discussion about who's the greatest among us. What we need to actually have a discussion about is who is the humblest among us? Who's the, who has the most servant spirit? Who, who is the one who is most gracious and generous and giving? Paul, you remember Paul goes into the discussion. He talks to the church at Corinth who they had this same problem. The Corinthians looked at outward appearances. There were people who came to the Corinthians and said, we are great ones in the kingdom of God. And they went, oh, that's great. We're going to listen to you. And Paul is like, guys, guys, guys. Okay, look. This is what Paul says. You, you want to go through those lists? I'll go through those lists with you. So in 2 Corinthians 11, he said, uh, this is foolishness to, to get into this boasting. But okay, you want boasting? Here you go. Um, since many boast according to the flesh, I'll, I'll boast if you want me to. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 19. Uh, you being so wise seem to bear with fools gladly, but... You bear with anyone if he enslaves you or if he devours you or if he takes advantage of you or if he exalts himself. If he hits you in the face because he's so much better than you, those are the people that you listen to. All right, to my shame, I'm going to say we have actually been weak by comparison. So I speak in foolishness, but I'll, all right, I'll be bold myself. Are they Hebrews? Okay, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak like I'm insane. All right, me too, even more so, in fact. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received of the Jews 39 stripes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, which, by the way, is a death sentence. That's, you know, stoning kills you. And he came back. Uh, three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, from robbers, from my countrymen, from Gentiles. Dangers in the city and in the wilderness and on the sea and among false brethren. I've been in labors and hardships through sleepless nights and hunger and thirst and without food and cold and exposure. And apart from all these external things, by the way, I have the daily pressure on me concerning all the churches. I mean, who is weak without me being weak? Or who is led into sin without me having intense concern? But if I'm going to boast, this is what he says, I I will boast in what pertains to my weaknesses. You actually want me to boast? I'll boast in what I'm weak. And he goes on more. We're not going to read it all, but it gets into the next chapter, in chapter 12, and having given a list of other things. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, I was actually taken up into the third heaven. For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. And I, and I implead, pleaded with the Lord three times to take this away, and, and he didn't. And this is what he said. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weakness, that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So, I am content with weakness, with insults, with distress, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the exact lesson that the disciples are totally clueless about. Jesus has tried to say to them, guys, 
I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. You are all not going to go to Jerusalem and sit on thrones. This is not how this is going to go. The kingdom is not about how great you are. Not as you're measuring it. The kingdom is about in weakness. We see the power of God. This, this is what we need to do. You guys are not dying to yourself. I told you you needed to take up your cross and die to yourself. You're not doing that. Instead, you're sitting around arguing about which of you is the greatest. So Jesus says, all right, let me, let me get an illustration here. Let me help you out. So Jesus, knowing what they're thinking, and of course what they're thinking is exactly all the things we just went through, um, he takes a child and, and brings the child over. Now, in the first century, children, literally, to the adults, children are a waste of time. That was kind of how they were looked at. Uh, if I wanted to idle my days away, then I would just do nothing and sit around and play with the kids. I mean, that was just kind of how they were viewed. That was the, the societal view of them. I mean, they eventually got education and all, but on the whole, kids were, mm, you know, kids. And so when Jesus brings this child into their midst, the disciples are going to be looking at that like, yeah, it's a kid, what? You know, they're, they're not, they're going to have to get this message. So Jesus is trying to help them. He doesn't, by the way, he doesn't smack them upside the head. You guys get your act together. That, that, that's not what he does. He brings this child over here. And a child, children are not particularly sophisticated. They're not particularly subtle. Um, they, they're not... They're not innocent, right? I mean, we're all born with sin natures, and kids are, they can get up to all kinds of evil things. But they're not, they're not in charge of anything. They don't really have any great command or authority or accomplishment. I mean, if you were to compare yourself to a child, hopefully, your accomplishments would greatly exceed the accomplishments of any child. And so the discussion is how great are we? And we're measuring our greatness by all those great things we've done. So Jesus brings this child over here who clearly hasn't really done much of anything. They're a, they're a child. And he puts him in the midst. And then he says to them, um, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. I mean, guys, if you want to start getting the measure of what's going on here, let me tell you, instead of dividing with one another, instead of being envious of one another, instead of cutting off contact with one another or boasting with each other, instead of getting over here and, and if you want to start comparing yourself, let me tell you what you need to compare yourself. You need to compare yourself to this child. Here's where greatness occurs. In fact, Matthew will tell us in the exact same instance, he calls a child to himself and sits him before them and says, truly, unless you are converted and become like children, you're never going to enter the kingdom of God. Unless you become like this child. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. And you can imagine the disciples are looking at that going, how could you say that? This, it's a kid. It's, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. This is, the greatness is all going to come from Jesus, not you. you. You have to become like a child. You have to get to the place, like Paul just wrote, where I glory in my weakness. I glory in what God is doing. 
I glory in my inability to carry out what God wants me to carry out on my own. I can only do it through the power of God. It's only when God does it that we actually get it done. And so instead of cutting one another off and getting angry with one another and getting into arguments with each other about who is the greatest and who's the most wonderful person around here and who can do whatever the best, which is only going to divide us all, we should, like children, have humility. This is what he says. If you receive me, then you receive him who sent me. The one who is least among you is going to be the greatest. If you really want to be great, what you do is trust God. Trust the work of Jesus. This is not a matter of trying to build up your kingdom. You're trying to build up God's kingdom. You're not trying to make disciples to yourself. You're trying to make disciples of Jesus. You're trying to get people to follow Jesus. Like, Like John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. John John is not trying to build a great kingdom for John. John was trying to build a great kingdom for Jesus. And so we all must be doing. In fact, it's really interesting when you look at the actual life of Jesus. I mean, if if you were God, and you were able to send your son down into this world, and you wanted him to change the world, you're like, all right, we'll give you three, three and a half years to just turn the world upside down. Exactly what kind of plan would you put together? Well, let's see. First thing we need is money. Man, we better get a we we better get a pile of money. We better we know where all the treasures of the earth are buried, so we better go dig them up. And we better all put them somewhere so that we have access to this to this just never exhausted amount of wealth. That's first thing we gotta do. Then we probably ought to use some of that wealth to, I don't know, buy a huge piece of land or something. And uh, maybe we should build a, a school or a university. We should uh, we should certainly get an army, and I don't know, I, I, it's the Son of God. He's got access to all kinds of knowledge. Maybe we should get an invention or two. You know, this is what we should do if we're going to turn the world upside down. Do something great. Defeat the Romans. You know, come up with an AK-47 or something. You know, I mean, do something here to just kind of really take over the world. I mean, come on, this is God. Do something great. Is that what Jesus does? Is that how this all goes? Jesus clothes himself in humility. He's born in a stable. They put him in a feeding trough. Really? And it's planned. This is deliberate on the part of God. Jesus is born to Mary in Bethlehem during the census when there's no room in the inn. God knows that. It's deliberate. Jesus is raised in obscurity. He says, Nazareth? Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, of all the places. He's not, he's not raised in Jerusalem. He's not raised in Athens. He's not raised in Rome. He's not raised somewhere that would be prominent where he could get up and say, well, I'm from. Uh, I'm from Nazareth. Nazareth? No prophet arises out of Nazareth. Just search the scriptures. Look at yourself. It's, it's, the Messiah does not come out of Nazareth. Why does God do this? Jesus is lowly and humble and gracious. Jesus loves his neighbor like he loves himself. Jesus so loves his neighbor that he literally dies for his neighbors. That's what he does. He dies in the place of his neighbors. Jesus is Humble. That's exactly who he is. And this whole deal with his disciples, 
guys. No, greatness in the kingdom is sacrifice, lowliness of mind, humility. Paul, again, will write in the Church of Philippians, don't do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests. Look out for the interests of others. In fact, have the same attitude in yourself which Jesus had, who although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard his equality with God as something that he had to grasp, something he had to hold on to. Do you know who I am? That's a statement Jesus did not make. Jesus did not come down here and go, all right, you guys need to treat me with the proper respect. That is not a conversation Jesus had. Jesus came and willingly allowed himself to be disparaged. It's it's how this was going to go. He didn't regard equality with God to be something to be held on to, grasped tightly. In fact, instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. And when he was found in the likeness of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is the example that Jesus gives us. And so when he comes to the disciples who are out there having this discussion about who's the greatest among them, okay, guys, what you got to do is you got to work at being the most servant-minded among us. And by the way, they won't get this, just in case you're wondering. This this one discussion, it's it's still not going to do it. Remember at the Last Supper, right? When they get to the Last Supper, and here's the 13 of them, there's, that's it. There's just the 13 of them. And when it comes time to go in for the, for the Last Supper, to enter into the room, it's the host's job to wash the feet of the people who come. Well, there is no host at the Last Supper, right? This isn't their place. They've just rented the upper room. And uh, we haven't quite decided who the host is. I'll tell you right now, it's not me, huh? getting me, getting on my knees and washing everybody else's feet around here. That isn't happening. And so, all 12 of them go in there and none of them do it. And of course, Jesus curds himself with a towel and goes around and washes their feet. And it's humbling. It's like, oh, I should have just done it instead of having Jesus. And of course, Jesus is looking at him like, guys, look, this is how this goes. So they still hadn't got it, even, even you know, the, day, the night before Jesus' death. It's, in fact, they'll have this conversation again. We'll get to it when we get to it in Luke. They'll, they'll have it again. They'll still be talking about who's the greatest among them. So then John, John kind of, the gears start turning. John is like, oh, so we should have, we should be tr- actually trying to get along with one another. Actually have a little humility with each other. Well, you know, <clears throat> Jesus, there was this incident we had. And let me, let me run this by you and... Uh, let us know if we actually did the right thing. See, when we were out there, verse 49, John says, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him from doing that because he wasn't with us. But Jesus said to them, don't, no, don't, don't hinder this guy, okay? That, that, don't hinder him. The one who is not against us is for us. The moment is going to come here shortly where you're going to start counting noses, and there aren't going to be very many of them. Uh, even come the day, the day before Pentecost, right? And the upper room, how many folks have we got up there? 
There's hardly anybody up there who you can actually count on to be serving Jesus. So, guys, it's okay. We can be gracious. We can be kind. Um, this is not a guy, by the way, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works? This, this isn't one of those guys, because Jesus commends him. He's not a false teacher. He is a, is a person who is genuinely trying to carry out a ministry. And there will, be, there will be others who will end up casting out demons. Jesus will appoint the 70 to go out and to do that uh, on top of the 12. So this guy may be one of those folks. There, Jesus had other disciples. Not many, mind you, until after Pentecost. Then the numbers got pretty good. But prior to that, not so many folks. So Jesus, be gracious. Be gracious. If this person is not speaking ill of Jesus, it's okay to be kind to them. It's, it's okay to be, to be uh, all right with others who maybe they're not one of the 12. So, and the fact that they tried to prevent him indicates they probably actually didn't succeed. And they tried more than once. Uh, there are going to be people who are, have slight differences with us. I don't know about you, but I've been at this long enough, I... I, I could get into arguments for myself about some things. Uh, so we have to be gracious. It's important to be gracious, to be kind, to do all we can. Um, we, we should be very slow to, to cut off fellowship with anybody. There are issues. There, I, you know, we don't want to be accepting heretics or, or divisive people. But don't be the divisive person. This is what Jesus is trying to say to them. Clothe yourself in humility. Be gracious. Be compassionate. Try to be understanding. Uh, there are dark days in our future. Um, there are dark days in our future, by the way, folks. I, I, you just look at where we're going as a nation. And life could get pretty exciting here pretty quick. Uh, it's nowhere near as stable as you think, which is much easier to say today as we kind of watch our society uh, you know, wobble here pretty good. Um, we're one crisis away from things really unraveling. Uh, so this is the time for us to have grace, compassion, be kind to one another. This is the moment to sit around and start getting braggadocious and how great we are. And th- those, uh, those kinds of discussions only lead to arguments and division and humility. That's what we need, the kind, gracious humility of God. And we need to share it with folks, not, not because we're better. We're not. We're not better than anybody. We are sinners, and we know it, and we should strive to act like that. And this, this example is given to us by Luke to help us contrast the attitude of Jesus, the attitude of the disciples. It's clear. It's, like so many things in the scriptures, you could just have the plain two sides and do your best to get on the side of Jesus. Get over there with the humility and the grace and the compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came down here, you lived a life in which you were, you were willing to put up with us, put up with the disciples, uh, bring this group of fishermen and common men who uh, didn't have great learning and, and great education in the great places of earth. They were just regular everyday folk like us, and yet you used them, and you used them to turn the world upside down because they trusted you, and they tried through the power of your spirit to serve you and to use their lives 
just as you are willing to use ours. So may we too be clothed with humility. May we look to the power of you and your word and your spirit in us. May we just be faithful and speak on your behalf, speak truth, and be your ambassadors. As we go through this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.